Well, Bethany, thanks for being here. This is a risk for me bringing on my attorney. So I'm really happy that uh, you're here and we're going to uh, talk and talk a little more openly. That's why I have you is so I can talk openly, That's right. right? Yes. <laughs> so I there's a lot going on in the world, particularly in the syndication, raising capital as interest rates have risen. There's been a lot of uh, bank failures as well as turmoil in the private markets including a Wall Street Journal article that just came out talking a little bit about syndication. So why don't we start there? Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Explain what's going on. Yeah, I mean, so the article was, was a real bummer. For anybody who hasn't read it, it, it really just bashes our industry, real estate syndication. And of course, it comes from the Wall Street Journal. So Wall Street, again, picking on Main Street, you know, yep. um, is get to what typical David and Goliath story. And it's a real bummer because they they bash the industry and kind of make it sound like it's really just a bunch of get get rich quick schemes and a bunch of scammers. And I mean, they railed this one developer. I'm not even going to say his name because I don't want to uh, I don't want to rail. They railed him, and then this little tiny bit of the article says, and for what we can tell, he didn't even do anything wrong or he didn't defraud anybody. He he lost money in in a market that everybody lost money in, right? And they're making it seem like that is that is just the. Um, it's just a bad industry as a result of that, right? They they bashed on some of the education programs that are helping try to take people who want to learn how to to earn wealth, you know, on even part with everybody else, and and knocking it down. So once again, we're sort of creating this divide, right, where the haves and the have-nots, and the haves do not want the have-nots to have. Yeah, I I've, I've been fairly outspoken about my personal beliefs on the accreditation laws and um, how that they tend to be a massive barrier and the way that they're set up, especially around like the formation of capital really breeds this idea that somehow rich people, just because they have money are smarter than those that don't. And there becomes this hidden world of alternative assets that a certain pool of people get access to. They are readily available options. And then the rest are left to the more Wall Street version packaged where everybody's taking fees and making money off of. Um, and that, you know, this idea of this separation, it, I understand the, the thinking behind it, right? We're trying to protect people from getting scammed or losing their money. And, uh, but the problem is, is these barriers of entry have clearly not in the United States helped there not only not be a wage gap or a wealth gap, but it seems that it has just all these regulations, all these rules have just absolutely spurred this ginormous wealth gap in the United States. So to start off, I, I think that there's a lot of good things that are going on with the government saying there could be tests or qualifications to allow people in. But what is, we, we talk about this David and Goliath type situation that was mentioned in the Wall Street Journal. Legally speaking, can you kind of talk about that situation where the access of accredited investors and non-accredited investors and the rules in that world of the can and cannot do's? Yeah, I mean, so the, the you're right. The law does treat people who have money as though they're somehow more sophisticated or smarter. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes we all know that's not true, right? Um, in fact, I have a whole thing about how mindset's actually a bigger, a bigger factor in whether or not you create wealth than anything else. Um, but you know, with the law, 
there are laws to protect non-accredited investors that don't have to keep them out of the game, right? I mean, there are disclosure laws. You know this. You've you've done this in all your deals, and you also know you do you do five hundred six C deals where you only allow accredited investors just because of the how onerous it is, right? Yes. You know, not to keep people out, but because it's just more onerous. Exactly. Um, and the not only onerous, but the liability. Right. Yeah. There's there's a lot of potential liability because the laws are like this, and it does keep people out. And the reality is, we at least I am my firm, um, we provide the same level of risk disclosures, whether they're accredited or not, because everybody needs to know the risks of their yes. of what they're getting into, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Right. I mean, so the law might be a little bit more lenient on you, but just I mean, you're you're very ethical. You're very transparent. Um, you want to let all your investors know what they're getting into, because, you know, back when I when I was in venture, we had a saying of, there was a, such a thing as dumb money. Yes. Right. Yep. And dumb money is really wealthy people who don't ask questions. They don't read their docs or just like, here's my money. And I always say the worst thing that uh, that anybody raising capital could do is take money from someone who says, you know what, AJ, I just trust you. Take my money. Yeah. No, don't trust me. No. Read the documents. Yes. Do your diligence. Look at the deal. Do not do this because those are the people that if they lose their money are like you, I trusted you. Trust you did you. this to me. Right. Yes, exactly. No. You set up a structure and you follow the structure. And if that's the case and everybody was was as on it as you are, then the people who weren't accredited could get into these kinds of deals because they'd have the same level of protections as everybody else. And I, I view this as when we look at, this actually tends to drive capital in certain ways. Like if you look at the population that really took a hold of cryptocurrencies and really fuel those type of assets and markets there's a reason i think almost psychologically why and it's all of a sudden this is an opportunity that's not a traditional 401k you know indexed fund that's like a alternative asset that i can get into because it's not regulated and there's no barriers or anything and they try to convince themselves that it's either not speculative and we see then what happens there. And you kind of look at it and you're going, this is backwards, where you have assets, alternative assets like cash flowing real estate that they can't go into um, at the way that other people can, right? And a totally different level when we're talking about these syndications, but then they can jump into a easily enough cryptocurrency and it, it, it causes this strange cause and effect where motives and where capital can go in the economy. And that's obviously why it's theirs to direct capital, but the players that are in it, um, they're restrained. The people that participate are restrained. And so the options that they have is where they go, obviously. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the government for, you know, what they're trying to, it's very protectionist. Of course, we know we have a very protectionist government. Um, and and that's not even political. It's just how it is, right? And you know, it, it's it's backfiring, I think, because people are then getting shoved out into into these more dangerous types of investments, and then they are losing their money. And then we've got this whole cycle that happens, right? And so, you know, the, the government wants to wants to say it's protecting people, but it the system isn't set up that way. No. Whether that's what people want to do or not, I, I'm sure most people are good people. Right. Most people have good motives, but the way the system is set up, it's not set up to to create wealth. It's set up to maintain. Yes, exactly. hundred percent. It's um, anti-disruptive. It's anti um, 
it's interesting if you look at the statistics. So as far as social mobility goes, the United States, we have one of the most aggressive social mobilities from poverty, extreme poverty up. In fact, the statistics are well over 65% of everyone in poverty will move up into like lower middle class or middle class, one of the highest in the entire world. But when you go from middle class to wealthy, that's totally different in the United States. That has actually been inversed. And we are now very, very slow for that uh, that level of upper layer, which that, that's great because we have a system where staying in poverty is actually not the norm. Where most countries, staying in poverty is the only solution, right? So that that's amazing. But in the United States, we used to have way more social mobility upward, where in the last 30 years, that has absolutely stalled out. And uh, you look at certain like corporations and you see the ownership spread around and it is complete protectionism where they all own, they're all the, they're making the rules, they're making the infrastructure net, and this is totally anti-capitalistic. So a lot of people think that, oh, you know, big corporations and all that, you know, working with politicians to set their own rules, that's capitalism. That's not capitalism at all. In fact, that's quite opposite. Yes, exactly. How do you get, you know, kind of, how did we get to this point and how did it change so quickly in just a few generations? You know, I think part of how we got here is, is we did kind of let the government start just making choices for us, right? We, I think people got a little bit complacent and a little bit lazy in, in deciding for themselves what's best for themselves. And, you know, the system, it's, it's weird. It's like one of those weird sci-fi movies where you're trying to get out of something and everything's trying to pull you back, right? That's yeah. kind of how it is getting up out of the middle class into mm-hmm. to wealth. Everything in this, in society is kind of pulling you back into the, the status quo, including the laws. And I think we kind of let, I mean, how we vote, right? Yeah. That we let that happen. And I don't even care which party it is. I'm not even talking no. about no, one no, there because yeah. it kind of fluctuates. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So I, I think we, we have allowed that to happen. I think part of that is, you know, growing up, my parents and then, you know, what I, whatever I teach my daughter, I, I didn't know what entrepreneurship was when I was a kid, right? Yeah. I didn't, I, I literally, I thought to get out of where I lived, I had to go be a doctor or a lawyer. Here I am. Yeah. Right. I thought that's what you had to do. And so that's what I learned. And so I think that by educating people, like your wife's such a good example, the, the conversation we had about your wife's school, educating kids on what's possible right? Not teaching them what's now. Because yeah. that's what we do, right? We teach our kids how it is. Yes. And then they don't know what's possible yeah. until they get out. And sometimes they break out and sometimes they don't. So, I mean, I know this wasn't about your, your wife's school, but uh, yeah. everybody should check out his wife's school. Yes. Is that we have to do this for our kids. We have to do that or else it's going to stay like this. It's going to be the status quo. That's how we change. When you look at the regulations for particularly, we talk about these level or the status quo as you go up. Um, as of right now, small firms in the economy, when we say firms, I mean all small businesses and small businesses are classified as um, the government's classification is really uh, under 50, but also under 100 in the small businesses. The premium of regulation right now sits at 20 to 25% evenly spread. The lower you go, the higher impact that regulation is on you. So meaning that small firms in the uh, economy pay a 20% 
premium to comply with the exact same regulations as the big ones. And at each end of the spectrum, that gets even further. So meaning if you're the smallest employer, you have a handful of employees, that is much higher than 20%. And the bigger you are, it's it's even more inverse, right? Um, with this system that is applied like that, uh, what are the things that small businesses have to do today when we're talking legally? So if you're starting an investment firm, if you're looking for investors and capital, what are the kind of regulations and barriers of entry that they have to deal with, which other firms that have tons of resources, entire legal departments and everything else, they, they don't have that same economic impact as the small ones do because they don't even know. Like that's the problem, right? Small businesses, they're competing like with a huge corporation on the same regulations that they don't even know, have no regulations too. What does that regulation landscape look like, especially surrounding obviously the syndications uh, as the Wall Street Journal was bashing on and things like that? Yeah, I mean, my sweet spot, of course, is securities compliance, right? So when people are raising capital. Um, and so that's that's the frame, you know, the, the lenses yes. that I see these things through, right? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of other compliance, but even just with raising capital, right, which is the way yes. to scale beyond what okay. your means are, right? It is the way to Especially get Especially if you're lower, you got to get money to build exactly. a business of any kind, and, really. And really, it is one of the only ways to get there because if, if you can't get debt, right, you can't get enough credit, you, you've got you've to go this route. And the, the compliance rules are are very much the same whether you're raising a million dollars or whether you're raising a hundred million dollars. A couple of variations and a couple of extra things you have to do if you're raising that much money. But the reality is if if I have a client that comes to me and says, I'm only raising 200,000 and they have to because they don't have 200,000, yeah. right? Um, they still have to do all the same stuff to save yeah. amount of work. Yeah. And so it, it's, that's where I think that you're, yeah. I think the gap you're talking about. Yeah, right? you have $20,000 in fees just to raise the capital part, whether it's 200,000 or 10% of the entire investment right. or a hundred million now it's 0.002 percent right right yeah and there there should probably be some grace for that i mean this is the, back to your earlier point about being accredited versus not accredited when someone comes to me and tells me tells me that they're only going to uh raise a little bit of money my best answer is one of two things one is joint venture find actual partners who have money who come in and do work with you well a lot of times passive investors they don't want to do the work they don't want to be a joint yeah. venture partner the other thing is make sure you only take accredited investors yes. because then you don't have to give all the risk disclosures and at least your compliance costs can be a little bit lower. So now we've got two bad things. One is you can't let anybody who's not accredited come into your deal. And that's probably your world if you need to raise two or yep. $300,000, right? Yep. And two is you are not, you're not being as transparent as you probably ought to be because the cost is high. Yes. Right. And so it's just the whole system is set up to keep those people from being able to raise the little bit of money that they need. Yes. You know, and, and the attitude, I think, from from Wall Street and some of these bigger guys, and I actually used to, my past life, I did a lot of work with um, venture capital and um, a lot of the really big tech plays, right? And I actually had a guy tell me one time, if you can't come up with $25,000 for your business, you, you have no business being in business. And I'm like... Whoa, talk about disconnected. I mean... Like... Like, I don't know about you, but up until relatively recently i didn't have twenty five thousand dollars no, who does involved, go, yeah right? go go drive around and ask how many people have twenty five thousand dollars sitting in their bank account you know and, and that's but that's the that's the mentality of of people wall street um venture in silicon valley you know it's it's yeah. these trust fund kids that are like just keep 
Keep them out of our space then. Yes. Have them be the worker bees. And two, $25,000 may just be the ability to do compliance. So now all of a sudden you're spending your entire startup funds just to comply with regulations. Then you have no capital left to actually really get moving because the reality is if you're raising capital, you do have the regulatory part, but then you have all the other business activities just to get the money. So if you're raising $200,000, you got to have the capital, you got to have the work, you got to have the marketing, you have everything else just to try to get that sum of money. Right. So as a, now think about that as like a total return on your capital. If you have to raise that much money, you're spending 15 to 20% of it to get the money itself. Yeah. It makes it difficult, if not near impossible for a lot of people. Right. And you have to know the people with the money uh, unless you're going to advertise and then only take the accredited investors. Yep. Right. So it's just this this vicious circle cycle that you can't get out of unless you you somehow leapfrog over. That's why I love, you know, education and coaching programs like you have where you're teaching people how to do this. Yep. Right. Uh, how how do you figure this out without, you know, putting a mortgage on your house or yes. or if you don't even have a house in the, this day and age, yep. a lot of young kids coming up can't even afford to buy a house. So yep. you know, where does that even come from? Yeah, and this is one of the reasons why I think technology is going to be such a huge lifesaver for this business and this market because, you know, we, we were talking about AI earlier. That's something that I can do in my firm to help these people that are raising just a small amount of money to say, okay, we're going to keep you out of jail and do this, and it's going to cost five thousand instead of fifteen or twenty thousand. Yeah. You know, if you're just raising a small amount of money now, using technology. If you don't mind, do you want to talk about that AI portion? especially with your firm. I don't, I don't know if you're in a place that you'd like to talk and explain what you're doing. You can talk, okay, perfect, yes, right okay. I get too excited and then I'm like, we could do this and this. Yeah, you're like, oh, it shouldn't my, be so My bad. integrator was like, dial it down. And I see George back there like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I know, I'm really excited. So you know this, I, I was on this quest to find the perfect platform for real estate syndicators, right? I wanted yes. you to be able to have your investor relations housed on there. I wanted you to be able to have fund management and reporting and education. And I wanted your community to be all on there, right? And then I met this guy, Jared Lutz, and he was like, yeah, I have that. I have all that. This is perfect for real estate syndication. I'm like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, and it's got AI. And I'm like, that's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so it's the the AI um, bots are the exciting fun part to, to lead with. It's I mean, my, my passion is to try to make this more scalable for yes. people like you. Yeah. Right. And to make it all in one place. Yeah. That's it's everything's disparate. Right. I mean, I worked with Kaylee to try to get what you guys wanted out of your your software and they're wonderful. Um, but it doesn't talk to HubSpot, for example. You know, so yes. So I want everything in one place. So you could just focus on what you do. Exactly. And you don't have to worry about it's over here, it's over there. And so the AI bot's really cool. But you know, my job, of course, is to always caution people of how you scale your business comes with risks. Raising money yep. comes with risks. AI comes with risks. Comes with risks. And you know, there are people out there right now putting queries into chat GPT and getting very, very confidently wrong answers. Yeah. Did you hear about the case, the actual legal case? I so did. Why don't you tell I a little did. bit about that? That's I, such an interesting you know, this, story. Well, this, I mean, this was really dumb. I mean, we, yeah. we should know about it, right? You do, you know, to do your diligence, you know, we yeah. know to, to not turn in something, spit out of, out of chat GPT without reading it. Um, but a lawyer, um, he, he had it right. Uh, I think it was a brief or something. I don't know. Just gave it over as is. Just citing cases. Yeah, that don't exist. That don't exist. That, that don't exist at all. And and that's the thing is, um, I was talking to to my partner Jared the other day, and I was like, AI bots are like interns, where you know they could take a lot off your plate, but they really have to be trained. And he was like, No, no, no. New AI bots are like my four year old. 
they know some words and they know some basic concepts and they have no idea how they relate to one another. They just like, barf out words. Yeah. And with the confidence of a four-year-old, you know, yeah. you've got yeah. kids, you know, right? And and he he said, gave me an example. He's like, I was asking Braden to name his jets um, from, you know, whatever, some movie or whatever. And he started naming the countries that he had just learned. Yeah. With this confidence, like that's AI. Yeah. And right now, when you go into ChatGPT or any of them, I'm not trying to pick on ChatGPT. Yeah, 100%. All of them, they have the whole universe of information out yeah. there. And I mean, you've been on the internet. It's not all true. <laughs> Crazy, I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, it and it doesn't know yet to how to to distinguish between what what's real and what's not real, or how to apply it to a real situation. Yep. So one of the things that we're working on is to create this this truth source, mm-hmm. so that you can be confident when you use AI that you're getting accurate information. So like the one that you're going to get built for you has been trained by you. Yeah. It only knows what you want it to know. Yes. And even though we have to test it, like I tested mine the other day and I asked it a question and, and it's really creepy because it comes back and it tells me things that I know I've said just like that, but it applied it wrong. Yep. Right. Until it's trained. Yep. It doesn't know. It just knows all the words I've said. Yes. So what we're creating is, is a platform that yes, you can use an AI, but we limit its sources of information to things we know are true and we verify and that it sits on the blockchain so we know it's protected, right? And so that's, you know, I well, in a cautionary tale. Yeah, and I, and I want to break this down because I think you have three uh, three things here we're really focusing on. First of all is what that technology is doing and that is allowing access. Access to actual information that is verified, qualified, right? And then that allows people, instead of having to get that direct ac- direct access and pay premiums that are out of reach, you can now do that at a lower cost, right? But you still get the right and correct information. And then it's in a controllable spot with the inputs that are known and guided by actual attorneys, right? And then you have also the record being on the blockchain. You actually have a record keeping of it so it can be go back and you can verify nice. and look and this is this is the things that are very exciting to me as well and i've noticed that whether you're business insider or wall street journal technology has disrupted getting capital and that has made wall street mad yeah meaning that they view it as you should put your capital through us only because we are these trusted sources but then you have technology that allowed people to connect directly that allowed me to understand individuals, their individual business models, and that I could go to them as resources at mass, not as like a one-on-one cell, but you can talk to a million people, right? And that disrupted the standard chains of capital. And you've seen increasing articles from the Wall Street Journal, from uh, um, Business Insider and others talking about you have to be very weary of this overall structure and it's so dangerous right um but technology is doing that where it's opening up access access to education access to other things so what you're doing and how you're applying that technology is once again centered around access yeah and that is awesome because it's it's starting to bring down those barriers that have been built up and up and up to protectionism right to keep the game going yeah. for the players and make it harder for new players to get into the game. And uh, that can seem really daunting to a lot of people starting out. 
And I think it's important to know that, you know, there's, it, it shouldn't be daunting. And it, there's ways that you do have access and there's more access coming up. And to get to a point where if you have a person that's saying, hey, I want to get into the game. I can't do all of this regulations. I need capital, whether that's for my business, whether that's for investments, right? What would you be telling those people? So there's ways that you can go that are going to be much more expensive, much more highly regulated where you can get into trouble. What are avenues that people should be going to raise capital for a business or investments? How can they get over those barriers? Well, so to back up just a little bit, I mean, our, the whole core focus of why I'm doing in the, any of this is, is to help people grow conscious wealth, right? And so it is to provide access. And there are really only three elements to wealth creation, and, and that's education, that's mindset, and that's access to opportunities. And that's it. And with the internet and now with AI, that's available to everybody. It may be varying levels depending on how much you already are coming in with, but if you have access to those, to those three things, you can start small and raising money. I mean, I, I do always think that one of the best ways to learn how to do syndication is actually to be a passive investor first. But if you can't do that, then the next best thing is to roll up your sleeves and partner with somebody who's done what you've done. Like I, I would say, don't um, don't try to learn everything yourself. Use yeah. other people around you. Go find, someone's already done it. Yeah. So doing a mastermind with you. And if you can't afford a mastermind, watching all of your yeah. YouTube videos. I mean, it's out there, yeah. right? And I'm trying to collect it in one place and, and, and explain to people how to use it, right? Because yes. it could be overwhelming, right? The whole internet's big. Yes. So. Well, I mean, even look at our firm. So right now we have our, what we call universally integrated systems, which at the end of the day, our firm has a architecture firm, a debt brokerage firm. We have a consulting firm that does the feasibility studies. We raise the capital, we find the deals, we operate the deals, we dispose of the deals, um, we have construction management, all in one. Yeah. We have our national brand and the technology platform in our firm. That is not only rare, the only companies that have that outside of our firm are REITs. But when you look at that, that seems so overwhelming. And it's really important to know that when we started, it was, let's buy this little asset, which we needed a couple hundred thousand dollars to do, and then let's figure it out. The easiest way for us to do that was a partnership where we partnered uh, together and then took the capital, the saved amount of capital from those people, bought it and learned. And you can do this too with people whether that's if you have the capital, you don't, but getting the experience and learning how and starting small to build. And over time, we gained all of these things, right? We, hadn't, we didn't develop for the first years of our firm. And then as we went on, it just stacked on top of each other. Yeah. So now it's where it's at. And now we have all these resources and everything, but it didn't, it didn't start out like yeah, that. Yeah, it's like the, the 15 right? year overnight success. Yeah, exactly. 20 year. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, there's no shame. This is what I want people to understand. There's no shame in starting small. Right? Yes. My first passive investment was $5,000. Yeah. You know, and I remember way back in the day where 5000 even seemed like, you know, a lot. I, mean, yes. I remember the first motivational speaker I ever heard. I don't even remember who it was. The, the first one I ever heard was like, you know, today $5 might seem a lot, like a lot. You take someone for coffee and that's like a lot for you, right? 
But if you keep going, then $50, um, you know, $50 then maybe is a lot. And then 500 is a lot. And then 500,000 is a lot. And that always stuck with me because at the time, $5 was a lot for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and now it's like 5,000. Yeah, I can, I can afford to lose 5,000. Let's just see what this is all about. Right. And if, but you can start, start small, but also you got to be willing to roll up your sleeves and work too. Right. So learn all you can. But I don't reinvent the wheel. I mean, yes. there are so many people who want to teach you. I mean, you, you talked about this earlier where the best in the business, they want to, to bring people up, yeah. right? They want Absolutely. to teach you because it's better for the whole community if this community is good, yeah. right? It's better for the whole community if everybody's ethical. It's better for the community if everybody's knowledgeable. It's why I, I do so much free education, why Mauricio does yep. so much free education is it's better for all of us if people know what the hell they're doing. Yep. And And so that's my number one thing is, take advantage of all the, the educational resources you have. And my favorite, honestly, is events like like Circle Live yep. because you get all three at once, right? Yes. You get you get mindset, you get the access to opportunities. I mean, there'll be live deals there. I mean, you're going to, you know, show some stuff that you have going on. Yep. Um, I, it's that more on hands experience because yeah. you're networking, you're building deals. Yeah. I mean, even if you looked at our firm, our, so our, our technology platform, our national brand, our um, our uh, debt brokerage firm, all these were all started at events because of people that we were meeting and networking with. Yeah. And I think that also comes back down to access because you, you know when you look at it, these barriers of entries that cause protectionism, that cause consolidation, which consolidation of capital or decisions is always bad, and uh, in politics and in economics. And when you look at the idea of access if you're born not into where you get affluent friend and family where that is just an immediate access you need to go out and search that out and find it yourself right you need to be actively trying to get it and that's where you know we were just talking with pace about this uh pace morby where we were talking about how the the good players and the big players out there are openly giving yes, out yes. all their information for free, right? Because that's not how their business model works anymore. Yeah. It's not, oh, come buy a course. It's not, there's not a gatekeeper anymore to the information and a pay to play because that stuff's breaking down and the business models instead, even like mine, free information, we get partnerships, we get deals, yeah. we get investors and all that, which then fuels the business. And that new methodology which is really coming out in the last three years. Prior to that, it used to be a pay-to-play. Okay, if you pay me $100,000, I'll teach you how to do storage, which today you can literally just listen to my self-storage income podcast, watch YouTube videos and read the book, and you're going to get everything you would have gotten yeah. for $100,000 right there. Right. That's access. That's And that's what we need, I think. you know. And, and what's the biggest difference between someone like you who gives it all away so that people can learn and someone like other people who charge $100,000 to keep all the secrets, it's mindset, right? You you teach people that because you know that there's enough, right? Yep. There's enough, oh, yeah. it's not a zero sum game. You no. can be successful and me being successful does not mean you're less successful, Yes, right? And that's how you build these partnerships. It's collaboration, not, not competition. Yes. And I really think that is the thing that separates the really successful people. And I look at my most my most successful clients and they're the ones like you who text me, can I say this? Am I allowed yes. to say this, right? Because you know that you can be successful within the guardrails that I've set up for you. Yep. Because you know there's enough. Yes. It's the people who don't believe that there's enough doing it legally that get into trouble. Yes. 
So I really think that's the biggest distinction right there. I, everybody can go on YouTube and learn it. Yeah. Really. They got to believe it though. They got to believe they can do it. They got to believe they deserve it. They got to they got to know it's there for them. And then they got to not do this this whole Wall Street you know garbage. It's yep. like, "Oh, it's a scam if it's that." Exactly. You know, if it's available to me, it must be a scam. No, it's not. You know, and this is it, it, one of the things is I think we've been lied to a lot about entrepreneurship. I call it the entre entrepreneur hero journey where where you watch like it's uh, you know Steve Jobs and you think that he built Apple completely by himself and he's standing up there and now it is and it was because he was just God's gift to man. And you're like, oh, well, I'm not God's gift to man and I'm not Steve Jobs, right? And it's like, okay, obviously you don't know the whole story because even starting out, it was out of partnerships. The business didn't become a business until they got hooked up with a huge venture capitalist company out of their garage that said, we can help you do all the business side, do all of this. And then after that, they had more partnerships and going on. It was collaboration. And I think a lot of times that hero, that archetype of the entrepreneurship hero journey puts so much focus on the individual that it makes people think either I have to be special, I have to have the in crowd right? It's a scam or something else. Then, and cause I don't have those things, I can't play the game where it's not, it's built on network, right? It's built on collaboration. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to believe that access and it, it's like, those are open. You have to go in, especially on these lower levels when you're not in the wall street, right? We do business with each other. You're doing deals together, right? That's how that actually works. That's why syndications are great yeah. because of partnerships and things that there's not that barrier. There's not that underlying barrier of entry. Right. That's right. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard me say this. I'm actually writing a book on it called The Power of OPE. Everyone always talks about OPM, right? You own other people's money. But the reality is you need other people's literally everything. Yes. And if you Every. just come to terms with the fact yes. that you're not, you don't have to be Steve Jobs. You, yep. There's somebody who wants to do the stuff that you hate to do. And the stuff that you don't want to do or aren't good at or whatever. There's somebody who loves it. You know, I would never want to do underwriting ever. There's, I know people, some of my clients, like that's all they really want to do. Like, I don't, don't talk to me. I just want to do the underwriting. Yes. You know, there's somebody that will do all the things that you want to do. Other people's, everything is also going to keep you safer. You get to work less. Yep. You get to only do the things you like and you get to make more money, but you're also safer legally speaking because you're not dabbling in things that you really shouldn't be because you think that you don't have any other option. Yes. You, you know, entrepreneurs are. I, 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 yeah, I, I love that. And I love talking a lot about that because when you look out, when, when you're starting out, and even when our firm was small, I had to do, and my partners had to do so many things that we weren't good at. We weren't qualified. It's just the nature of the beast. And it was like the first second, the first capital that we had it was to get somebody else that was better than us to do it right yeah and then that's where the growth comes that's why i feel like on the first you know five years of entrepreneurship the first three years it's really slow for most people and then it's till they start figuring out to get people that are experts that are amazing at those things and that's when they start to really really propel if you look at especially in real estate you know you go buy a property well, first of all, you have someone funding it. You have someone operating it. You have someone managing it. You have all of these partners to go into. You have the brokers, the underwriters, the bankers, the investors, the property management company, asset managers, right? It takes all of these different parties to come together to do a deal, 
And it, once you start realizing that's how it works, I feel like it's it it's a huge weight off people's shoulders. Yeah. I don't have to be amazing at everything. And it's more attainable now. Exactly. Right? And, and the thing I always tell people is take the time and put in the effort, whatever it takes, to actually figure out what you're amazing at and love to do. Because a lot of people are like, I don't know, this is what is in front of me. If you figure out, one, you know where you're heading, of course. We all, you know, you yeah. set your goals, whatever, and know where you're heading. If you figure out what you're amazing at, what you love to do, and you commit to only doing that, Everything else feels so much easier because now you know, okay, well, that's not my thing. So I've got to find someone who does that. As long as you, you've you taken the, the time to do that, it, it becomes easy because you don't feel like I should be, oh, I should be doing underwriting because I guess that's what I have to do, right? Mm -hmm. it, no, you know what you're supposed to be doing. Then for everything else, there's somebody who could be doing that. Like I, you know, I could figure out how to change my oil. Why would I do that? Yeah. I'm so much better at other stuff. Yes. Probably going to drop a car on myself if I tried to do it. Yes. <laughs> that would be dumb. Like there's and there's someone who loves to do that, right? You're not going to write your own PPMs. Why would you do that? Yeah, you know? and that's that is essentially capitalism, and that's why I don't like protectionism. Yeah, because you're consolidating that all in one, and then you're protecting the largest firms in the economy. Yeah, that can block out everybody else that can't do it all as one. And then that creates anti-competitiveness where, you know, as you talked about before, um, regulations and why I was excited to have you on is one of the largest barriers mm -hmm. by far. And if anything, that barrier is, is simply to, it, it's not that it's a scare tactic, but it is scary. It is. It is. Because scary. there's real live world consequences yeah yeah if you do it if, if you do it correctly but again there's somebody there's somebody it is is exactly. to tell you how to do it and that's you know that's one of my passions is to help people figure out how to be safe and doing it. i mean look if you're going to be raising other people's money you probably should be a little bit scared because yes. if you're not maybe you shouldn't be doing it, yes right? you've got to treat it yeah. better than your own money however there's no reason to be paralyzed by that fear yeah just hand it off yes you know and then do your thing Make sure that somebody else that's better than you knows how to do it. Right. And the compliance. We have the regulation to just get started. What's it look like for businesses in today's environment for ongoing compliance, regulatory, whether that is investors' money or just operating business today, ongoing compliance? So ongoing compliance is really, I mean, if you are completely transparent and, and communicating with your investors, that's the bulk of it right there, yeah. right? I mean, that's the main thing that, especially when you're under Reg D, which is the exemption that you're under, which is you're not, it's not a public offering, right? It's, it, you're exempt from that because it's, it's a private offering and you've given all the risk disclosures and all that. So at that point, you just, it's maintenance at that point, right? So if you've, you've given all the risk disclosures, now you're just maintaining and you're, you're letting your investors know what's going on. There's some annual reporting that you can do. But um, that's actually, you know, staying under those those rank D exemptions is actually fairly simple I know, for someone who knows what they're doing, right? Fairly simple to keep in compliance with once you've done it. The bigger hurdle is getting there, you know, is the, is getting started. The the ongoing maintenance is not as bad. Now, actually, public companies, are, that's one way where they, they do have actually a lot more compliance because they have to keep the reporting going with with the government. Yes. It's just it's one way where being smaller is, is easier and better. Yeah. Yeah. 
when we talk about going public, maybe we can talk about that real quick so people understand this. When you talk about raising money, what are the different methods to raise money in, right? Like you have obviously syndications, you have corporations and issuing of stocks, you have issuing of bonds, which are the form of debt. You have just partnerships. Talk me through the different levels and what they mean. So somebody wanting to say, I've got a business, I want to raise money. I have an investment, I want to raise money. What are their options? And what does it mean with those options? So where I usually live is raising money from passive investors, meaning you're taking money from somebody who's just giving you the money, they're going to rely on your efforts, right, in order to to um, get a return. That's one way. And that's when you're selling security. So you've got a couple of options there. One is you can register the offering like an IPO, like Microsoft or Facebook or whatever. Two is is you can find an exemption, which is what you usually do. And the exemptions that we usually live under are Reg D, um, 506B or 506C. Um, there are other exemptions, though. Reg CF, crowdfunding. Reg A plus is like what you see Grant Cardone yeah. doing, where you could advertise and you could take a lot of regulatory compliance there. Um, or it's illegal, right? If you're going to raise passive, but there are other ways to get money. Like you said, there's, you could issue debt. Um, although a lot of people get confused here because a lot of times when you're raising debt, it's still a security. So you can't just call it a note and and get around the exemptions or the securities laws. Um, but you know, good old rich friends and getting into partnership with rich friends is actually, you know, one big way, right? Is to say, look, you've got money. I'm going to need you to make some decisions. I'm going to need you to have some management oversight. So it's a joint venture and not a securities offering. Um, you know, and, and the thing that I always advise people of is you don't get to decide if it's a, a securities offering or a joint venture, just because you don't feel like doing the compliance. That's your facts decide that. So, you know, it, and and the SEC looks at everything on a facts and circumstances basis. If you don't like your your circumstances, you change your facts. Yep. And if that's the case, and you want to take money, then you have to just make them active partners. And that's one way is a joint venture, and that's a little bit easier because it's just a contract. Yeah. At that point, right? And that keeps you out of the security. So if you're only raising a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, it might be better to go find a rich uncle and have them get voting rights and do a little work and, you know, be, be actively involved. So well, they're not and lots of times too, that's actually a benefit to you. Yeah. There's benefits though, to working, obviously, if you're getting that capital from your rich uncle or whoever it may be, lots of times you're getting that experience, which is needed. Yeah. Yeah. Less risk too, right? In that um, you, you're not, you're not dealing with the government at that point. You're just yes. dealing with your rich uncle on a contract. Yep. And the only reason anybody ever hears about that is if it goes south, then your uncle sues you. Yes. And now it's in courts. But that's also different because then that isn't civil, right? That's not. So if, if it's a security, you're, you have oversight from the government, right? Making sure you do something wrong. But in the case like you just mentioned with the rich uncle, that would be different. He would be suing you in a civil court, correct? Right. Yeah. That's not typically going to rise to the level of something, you know, criminal or the the SEC is not going to be investigating you. The FBI is not going to be knocking on your door. You know, this is just a civil matter. Right. And, yes. and you, if you have a good contract, it's really not even that it doesn't even need to go all that far. Right. Usually we put in something that, that says you arbitrate or you mediate, or you can handle it even before you get, you know, you get to that point. And if you have a good enough contract, most lawyers are going to go, there's something to fight about here. Yes. Right. I, I like to say in partnerships, in anything, start with the divorce. Yes. So yes. it's the idea that, all right, you've got to start saying, when we get divorced, how is this going to work? Yeah. Not, it'll never happen. Not, hey, we're just going to put this together and it's going to be great. 
and it's going to work out. Um, you need to start with the, we hate each other and we're going to fight over this. So what are the rules of the fight? What's the arena that we're playing? Yeah. And, and, and that is, that's such good advice to give to anybody who's getting started is everybody loves each other now. Yes. And let's, let's work this out while we do so that it, you know, it, it's not so ugly, but yeah, you're right. You have to think about what happens when something, cause something's going to happen. It yes. might not be, we hate each other, right? But, the world might not, you know, ex explode, but something's stuff happens, yeah. you know? I mean, you look at just our industry where a few years ago you trip over a property, you made, you know, huge returns yep. and, and now, you know, what was it? Who, who, I don't know. I remember who said it, but it's like the tide's going out. We're going to see who's been swimming naked. Is that? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's good. That's good. I mean, you've got to, you've got to prepare for the worst case scenario. I mean, you're talking to a lawyer here. That's all I do, right? Yeah. Is prepare for worst case yeah. scenario. Take a little. But, but that's like one of the reasons why we get a lot of our investors and our business is because we look at things through the lens of 2008. We own properties before it, during it, after it. We didn't go bankrupt or anything. And all our deals have always looked at with that lens, meaning that we know things will go wrong. So we know why we own these properties. We don't know when, but things will go wrong. They'll go wrong on a property, on a local market, or on a national scale. 100% guaranteed. So we have to have a framework within that property that allows it to go up and down, the markets to go up and down. We have a longer term uh, outlook to where we can actually close, whether that's a refi, whether that's a sell, but it's predicated on our time. So we don't get caught, right? And when you're, I think a lot of people are really scared to talk about the downsides. They're really scared to talk about, it's like you don't want, you, you don't ever want to tell a potential investor in that there could be something wrong because then they may not want to invest with you. Right. And I, not only is that not good legal practice, um, <laughs> but I think you also, I just don't think that's good business practice. It's not. And, and here's why is this is exactly what I tell people to tell you. And if there's something that you're like, Oh, if I tell them that they might be upset and not invest, that's exactly what you need to tell them because yes. you don't want them to invest if that's going to be a problem yes. for them, because then you're going to have to deal with it. And it's a much bigger nightmare to deal with an angry investor when stuff goes wrong than it is to just not get that investor. Yeah. I, I mean, from experience, I can promise you that's true. And so, yeah, anything that you're like, Oh, I don't know. That's what you tell. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we had investors, we did our, big funds that we had. Um, we did a large one in 2022 and it was right off the backs that I wrote a white paper, basically an article on the self storage bubble where I outlined with all our data, how in 2023 was going to be a horrible year for real estate. Here were all the things happening and this was going to be why. And I'm raising $25 million at the exact same time I issued this thing on public, it got over a million uh, views, I think, on Twitter. I was consulting uh, two multi-billion dollar banks at the time who were shorting self-storage stocks off of my recommendations. Now, that could be a little confusing, <laughs> right? And how do I talk to investors and tell them, note this? And I say, actually, that is why you want to invest with me. Because I'm literally telling you where the landlines are. 
And right. it's you don't want to go with someone that says there are no, there's no dangers, right? And sure enough, that stuff played out. And it is still funny how quick investors forget. Yeah. So we're like, oh yeah, so it's a slower lease up season, right? So distributions may not be coming on as quick or whatnot. And then somebody's like, gets mad about it. And you're, that's even telling them. So imagine if you say it's going to be rosy, right? right? And yeah. things go bad. No, I, you don't want to surprise people like that because they're already in it because they believe, right? They're all, that's, that's what they're going. It's like more like, hey, cool that, right? Be upfront. I just think it, it adds confidence. I think it's a sign of maturity. And I think the investors that you want, like you said, will respect that. Right. That's right. And in, it's just what you need to do anyway, because you're going to have liability yeah. if you don't, right? Yeah. And that's why you know, when we do our, our offering documents, right, we put all the scary stuff in there. And that's to protect you. I mean, the SEC is there to protect the investors. We're here to protect you so that if an investor does kind of have, you know, some memory loss from, you know, listening to you tell them and reading, you know, your yep. your white paper and, yep. and seeing all the places where you've told them these things, you can go, but you signed right here. Yes. And we told you all these things. If you didn't tell them, you don't have that to fall back on. Yep. Talk about those disclosures real quick. How should disclosures be e either issued or if you're raising, even if it's with your rich uncle or a family friend or a mom and dad's 401k or whatever that may be starting out, what kind of disclosures should you be disclosures? But what, you know, when you're making those kind of statements and things, how should they be issued or documented? Is there a format or a way? Yeah. So we do, for most deals, we do a private placement memorandum, right? And that's going to have, that's a pretty robust document with, with all kinds of disclosures. One of the main things that we're going to disclose in there are all the ways that the management team or the sponsor team are getting compensated, for example. Yep. That's something yep. you need to tell everybody. Even if it's an affiliated company, we say this is yes. this is happening, right? Um, uh, the obvious risks of the deal itself, right? The market could turn. Um, Self-storage might be in a bubble, for example. Um, you know, COVID could happen again, right? Um, all those things, 2008. We have disclosures in there about 2008 in our PPOs. We have disclosures about COVID now. Um, so those are the really high level, just the risks of real estate in general. Yeah. Um, it's an illiquid uh, investment, for example. So, but then also we want to talk about this is how we see see the deal going. Maybe we don't anticipate returns for the first six months. We're telling you that right now. Yeah. When you you know when you do it, this is what you're going to get when we do have money. These are the splits. This is what we're going to get. So you want to of course tell them what the deal is. Now that part's easy because you're telling them at a business plan. You're yeah. you're telling them to sell it, right? Yeah. But it should match. Yeah. And I it's it's happened where. People are out pitching and they change, they change and they maybe don't let me know. Um, and then now the PPM and the business plan don't match. And now in fairness, the business plan probably got a little richer for the investors, but now the PPM has disclosures that don't look as good because it was the original, it was the original thing. Yeah. That's not gonna give a lot of confidence to your investors if it doesn't match or if they didn't understand it. Um, so just little things like that, like making sure you keep up with whatever's evolving. So I get it when you're raising money stuff, you, you know, you're like, I got to change this. I can't raise this money. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. But we got to make sure that we're all on the same page. So, um, yeah, but the, the really big ones are making sure all the compensations in there and then just like big, you know, is this property on a city dump? <laughs> it's yes. like, do I need to, you know, do I need to disclose that? Has anybody on the sponsor team filed for bankruptcy 
recently about a, a real estate deal? Is there something like that? Is somebody in litigation that we should know about? Yeah. Right. Am I, if I Google you, am I going to find something, you know, and, and your history that maybe you should have told me about before I decided to invest in this deal? Right. Yeah. Little things like that. I mean, I've had people come to me and say, um, I've gotten a, a license revoked for back child support. Should I disclose that? I'm like, the rule is if you think, if, if a reasonable investor, would think that's an important thing to make their decision whether they should or should not invest, then yes, you need to disclose it. Yeah. Right. And if we know about it, we can at least put the mitigating circumstances around it. Most of the times the people are like, they don't want to tell me they've had a bankruptcy, for example. It's usually, oh, wait, happened or a nasty divorce. It's almost always that. Yeah. Well, you can just say that to your investors. They're human beings. So there's no reason to hide it because if they Google you and find it out and you didn't tell them, now you've lost confidence. Yes. You know, so... I am all for just throw it all out there yeah. and let them know. Yeah. And, you know, if you lose people, you lose people. Now, I love what you're doing. You're create, trying to create access and a lot of things you're going to be rolling out soon to help people get through the sea of regulation and these massive barriers uh, that have been created. Where do you think at this point the United States is going where it's already fairly heavy on protectionism and the laws. So the accreditation rules are right now, yeah. they're they're up for debate and yeah. they're trying. I think Congress is already issuing some things. Where do you think over the next year here or two, do you think that they're actually going to change their accreditation laws? Are they going to allow a test to become accredited? Or are they going to raise that accreditor status to 5 million? Liquid investable yeah. capital for investable capital, not liquid capital. So I actually, and of course, we don't know, right? They've yes. been talking about it or whatever. I actually think they they will probably raise the minimum, um, unfortunately. And I'm I am not for that. I know there are a lot of people out there in our community that maybe are for that, but I don't. I'm not. Um, but I do think they're going to offset it by this this testing um yes. requirement that if you can at least show you're sophisticated enough then you can get past that hurdle yeah what i'm not clear on is if that's going to be enough mm. meaning it is is that going to be accessible enough is that is that a realistic yes um gauge yeah of whether or not you know you're sophisticated enough or could we do that that instead of something else? like are we gonna be able to choose our path yeah meaning like can i just take the test and not have to show you all my financials can i just yeah. do that because a lot of people would rather just do that, yeah. right? Um, and then there's this, we've got, there's always some debate around whether tests are inherently unfair. Yes. Right. And so are we going to run into some political issues that stop that up? And, and then we don't really get to see it because too many people are fighting about whether or not it's good. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that we're not, we're not at the end of it yet, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but where I do see, I, I, I see technology helping us at least lessen the gap a little bit by providing more access yeah uh, you know i mean we th there were some really major life life-changing events in our in our lifetime right the, the internet yeah smartphones uh 9-11 yeah. covid and now ai it, it, when you look think b before and after those things we forever changed yes in, in some for the better some for the worse yeah but i think we're in this age where we're at that next one with ai yeah. do, and i think that if if in the right hands we can use that for good, right? I know people are scared of it and people are saying, oh, it's going to replace humans or whatever. It's going to, it's going to, 
keep people from communicate or being you know, like in community. And I don't think so. I think it's going to enhance community if, if done well, because it's going to take garbage tasks off our plates that just eat up bandwidth so that we can connect, yes. you know, in person. So I, I think if used responsibly, we can at least, um, you know, I, this, like my job is to know the rules that help you navigate in there. Well, if I'm helping you navigate and then use this technology, then I can at least help provide that access to people who don't have it now, which is the goal. I love it. Well, where can people go find out more about you? Where can they reach out? Um, my YouTube channel, Bethany Laflamme or uh, PLGLP, actually Bethany at PLGLP.com or PremierLawGroup.net. I'm, I'm all over. Yeah, you are. You all are. It's great. You're here. You're will be at it. Uh, even at our events. So thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for all your work and teaching people and breaking down barriers. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.